and welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode 690. I'm Richard Jarrett, joined as ever by Jim McDowell over in the States. Jim, good evening. How are you doing? Uh, it's uh, good to be back from Coda. Had an amazing time at the track with some great racing and interesting racing and different things gone and whatnot that happened there. So lots to talk about. Yeah, and some excellent Instagram posts that I was watching throughout the weekend. So uh, well done on those. Thank you. None of it was right because I <laughs> it's predictions, right? We, we all know we don't predict anything. Yeah, well, you always know forecast will be wrong. So just before we get into talking about the weekend, we don't have a huge amount of other bike-related news to talk about, although I will just preface that with something else in a moment. But before we do, the usual shout-out to anybody that would like to donate to the show. That's always warmly welcomed. And, of course, you can do so through Patreon as well. If you just head over to motopodcast.com, that's where you'll find the links to do that. Just in the last week, quick shout-out for Keith Kovach and Nick Saban. Uh, we had some kind donations from those two gentlemen. And Darren Andrews, I believe, is a new Patreon subscriber. So Darren, thank you very much. And we'll return to Darren in just a moment because he sent me an interesting question on Twitter. So without further ado, Jim, should we just have a little talk about a few bits and bobs before we get into Kota? Sure. I had a couple of things I wanted to mention. So first of those is that the British Superbikes kick off this weekend, which is very exciting. We're recording this on Thursday. What's the date today, Jim? The 14th. 14th yep. of April. So I'm heading over to Silverstone tomorrow for the Friday practice. I won't be there for the races on Sunday, unfortunately, but uh, I've got a couple of things planned at Silverstone tomorrow in terms of chatting to a few people, which will hopefully lead on to a few other things, which will be good for the show. One of the big pieces of news that I will just mention, very unfortunately, which is that at the test session last week, which was very cold and very windy, Taron McKenzie had quite a big crash and he's quite badly broken his ankle. So that's going to rule him out of the British Superbike round one at Silverstone this weekend, unfortunately. And very, very unfortunately, it's going to rule him out of the wildcard that he had planned at Assen at the end of the month as well. So that's a great shame, although they are going to try and slot him into some other wildcards a little bit later in the season, I think. And just one thing I wanted to pick up on that you mentioned last week, Jim, which was that we had a new patron subscriber, Hudson Kai Cooper. Now, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Hudson because he's a very young lad, but he runs in one of the Avali racing series in the UK. I'm not quite sure. I would need to check which size of the bikes he's running this year. So I'll come back on that. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to give uh, Hudson a quick shout out. Again, he's one of the young lads that we'll perhaps try and have a little bit of contact with as the season goes on just to see how he's going and to keep track of his progress. But another welcomed subscriber to the show anyway and perhaps what we'll try to do next week is i'll try perhaps just to give a quick roundup of british superbike and we definitely need to have a chat if we possibly can about world superbike at aragon last week because i've seen a couple of those races so far and they were absolute barnstormers so it would be rude not to touch on those and i guess you might have a few things to say if we do do that jim about a certain italian who's turned up in moto america that you will have been watching at the weekend mm-hmm. yeah so yeah i think we'll do that for next show we won't give too much away because uh, we've got no MotoGP this weekend, so perhaps we can have a little bit of a Superbike special next weekend. Now, uh, I mentioned Darren, uh, who got in touch with me through Twitter. This is Darren at DPA722. He had a couple of questions that he wanted to give us to talk about on the show today. So the first of these was, will this year's MotoGP winner have the lowest average points per round in the history of the sport? Too early to say, mm. but it is possible. It is all over the place. I... Hmm. Something about this tells me that it will be more normal once we get into the European races. The flyaways are always kind of odd. Mm. Even the end of the year flyaways tend to be sort of 
a little weird because crazy things happen, right? You show up at the island and it could be all four seasons in 26 hours. <laughs> you know, mm. uh, you got the heat and everything in Malaysia. But I, I do think that there is a distinct possibility that you, well, that we may see a new record for different winners in MotoGP this year. I'll throw that one out there as I think that that's what's going to happen just based on what's happened so far. Yeah, I would, I would tend to agree with that. I mean, I'm not really a statistician, so I would have to look back a little bit to see how the points have been spread in the past. Certainly, I think it will be the closest in recent history, but whether it would have been any different going back a little bit, perhaps, yeah, I, we would need to check on that or engage somebody that knows much more about stats than we do. But um, it kind of leads on to Darren's next point, which was that will Ducati end up regretting having so many bikes on the grid this year because of the fact that they will be at risk of taking points off each other? I don't know yet because right now they can't get themselves together where they sh- could dominate the podium, which is what they should have done, but didn't do. Mm. So who knows? Will they regret it? Maybe, possibly. But as for right now, no. And the, the thought that I had on this is that recent history tells us that Ducati are quite ruthless when it comes to imposing some team orders or, or choosing somebody that they're going to support. And it's quite easy to see that perhaps possibly Banyaya, certainly Jorge Martin, and definitely Enea Bastianini are going to be the three most likely, I think, as the year goes on, Jim, as you say, as things start to settle down and perhaps some more regular kind of looking results and more consistent performances start to come to play, which, as you say, you would expect to start to happen once we're getting into the European season from next weekend onwards. Perhaps that will start to lessen that risk that we felt that Ducati might be at risk of at the beginning of the season or pre-season anyway, where we were talking about the Armada and the fact there were going to be so many Dukes at the front, were they going to be robbing each other? So I think Darren's point in question is well made. I think probably this will shake out and if they need to, as they did a few years ago with Lorenzo, if you recall, he was kind of ordered to start to help Davizioso's title challenge, uh, which he did, albeit I think somewhat reluctantly, but um, that would be my view anyway. So, But yeah, thanks Darren for that. And anybody else that wants to fire questions in, motorpod at motorpodcast.com uh, or through the various Twitters that we'll give at the end of the show. There was one other thing that came in, Jim, which you may have seen, although of course you were very busy at the weekend being at Cota, but Len, our very own Len Padilla from this parish, he shot in his two pence worth on the question that I had posed about whether or not we should be looking at two day race weekends rather than three day. And he made the very, very good point that, you know, this is a sport, it's about excellence and to be excellent, you must practice. So he was very much in favour of the three-day format and the concern that he mentioned a couple of other series, and we could mention several as well, where the spectacle starts to take over. So they start to try and throw in random things. I mean, think of the horror of reverse grids and things like this, you know, which are squarely aimed at just the spectacle, really, rather than the purity of the sporting aspect and the need for the governance of the sport to be really very, very clear in terms of it being technically driven and not ratings driven. So Len made his feelings perfectly clear on that one. And um, I, I can't disagree with anything that he said. My point about the two-day meeting was purely whether or not that level of randomness sometimes is for the betterment of the racing rather than at the, the expense of it. But I don't know if you've had any more thoughts on that in the meantime, Jim. Well, I agree with Len. It's a sport. You get to practice. If you want to be the best at that, you need seat time. And I can, we kind of touched on that a little bit, I think, mm. when we first talked about this. But he is right, very much so in that respect. I don't like constructs that create chaos. I hate 
high degradation tires in another sport. That's a world championship that we've had mm-hmm. for years. Yep. Uh, <laughs> those things I hate. However, I'm not looking for the compromise in this, but I think that what could be interesting is that tracks that these guys know very well, sort of like the Valencias, the Portomayos, the Aragons, maybe those become two-day race weekends because they really need to pound around setting up the bike for someplace they know so well. Because there used to be so much testing at Barcelona that you get to Barcelona the fourth, fifth race of the year, and you're just like, and it's a snooze fest because everybody has it already figured out. Yeah. So if you had only two days there, it would kind of shake it up. But if you have the flyaways, if you have new tracks, maybe those are three days. So everybody has enough time to learn and understand the tracks. But again, that does that really make a sport or are we defining a construct that changes the sport? Mm. What my thought is in that to back up, hey, the tracks that we know and we have been to year on, year on, year on, we leave it at a two-day weekend only because there's so many races. There's 21 races this year. So these guys need some time away from the track as well. So by eliminating a day for most of the races that happen in Europe saves a little bit of cash. It maybe allows for a day or two of testing somewhere else for the lesser teams. Or if you want to stay with three days, here's my thought is, Let it be a true test day on a Friday where you throw anything you want at it for as long as you want, however you want, you know, track goes green at 8 a.m., track goes cold at 5 p.m., and there's an hour lunch in between, and you, if you bought a ticket to the race, you get to see testing all day long. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Those are maybe some things that could be done or looked at. Yeah, because I've made the point that, and I don't know if this was the case back in the day with MotoGP or perhaps even before that, you know, with two-stroke GP500 or whatever, but certainly back in the 80s and the 90s and the early noughties for that matter, I would regularly go along to Silverstone where they would hold a two to three day F1 test and it was just an in-season test. Obviously, there was a lot of testing going on in those days. And of course, that's really been cut out. And that's the same in MotoGP. I kind of lament the fact that the in-season testing has been cut down as much as it has, because you used to be able to turn up as a spectator, pay a relatively small fee to get in. And as you say, just watch what was going on through the day. Now, you might not see your favourite rider come out at all. They might not be there there was normally a lot of track action going on and it was always a good day out to see. So I'd quite like to see that come back a little bit if it was at the expense of some of the other days running that they have so that it balances out overall. But anyway, it's a question and a discussion, I guess, that will run and run. But let's get to the races. Now, Jim, you were there. So just give us your impressions of having been away for... Did you go last year? Yeah, we did go in October. Okay. But we flew down and saw the races and then flew back home on you know flew on friday morning get there by noon watch the second practice sessions um do all day saturday do all day sunday then go back home on a plane on monday morning so this time we went down and we actually camped we actually stayed at the track and that is a whole different world to go into (laughs) we met so many great people that were in the campground with us um they were just amazing you know shout out to scott and becky shout out to andre and mary they're people that were our neighbors in the campground if you will And it was just a good old time had by all. It's really interesting to be woken up by the sounds of motorcycles ripping around a racetrack at 7.30 in the morning Friday. (laughs) And then really kind of tough to realize that they're not going to let you in with your ticket until it's actually 9.30. So you get this weird smell of bacon frying mixed with spent race fuel wafting away. (laughs) So it's very cool to do. Uh, It allowed us to walk everywhere around Coda and see different pieces of the track 
if anyone ever goes to Coda to see MotoGP, I cannot stress enough that you need to walk down through the S's and watch the bikes through there. Then you need to keep walking and watch from the area of say turn five, six, seven for a little bit. But the best place to watch the MotoGP bikes is to go down to the top of the hill where they go up the hill at nine, have the kink at 10 and then down, you know, that's downhill then to 11 Yeah, to stand there at the top of the hill and watch them go through there at about 160 miles an hour, 130 miles an hour. I think for MotoGP bike is truly awe inspiring. And you understand very quickly how brave or how narcissistic these guys are because they will go through there with it wide open with the bike, just wiggling underneath. Mm. And they somehow survive the, the guys that I went with had never, two of them had never been to a MotoGP race before, and they never been to Coda. And we got to that point and it's just their jaws on the ground in this, trying to understand what they just witnessed. The other thing that's really good. If you, if you're there, if you go to Coda is standing on the Hill at, you know, say around six or six, turn six, five, six, seven, somewhere in there, as you have a pretty good look at the back straight away. So you can see how hard a MotoGP bike accelerates. Turn 11 is first gear for the MotoGP bikes. And they accelerate from that, let's say 30, 40-ish mile an hour to over 218 miles an hour before they break for 12. And if you watch any piece of that and your mind has a really tough time understanding that that motorcycle is going that fast through there. So I highly recommend that if you can stay at the track, do if you have the means to do so, do. It is a phenomenal way to do the race and i don't think i'd go there and do it any other way to be honest okay so you're locked into camping from now on then i think so yeah it's definitely on my bucket list well you know hey if you schedule it up right we can just take you in the rv with us yeah that'll be cool uh, certainly you mentioned in the downhill turn 10 down sort of the, the steepish bit down to turn 11 i mean it looks steep on the tv and obviously as we've said many times before tv has a habit of flattening topography out so it must be really pretty steep in real life yeah. So if you've watched it, you've obviously seen that there's a there's a bridge that's sort of after 10 at the kink had Patronus on it. Mm-hmm. So to give you an idea, that sign is probably a good, I want to say 15 to 20 feet above the surface of the track. And we were standing at the very top of the hill. And when we would look towards that sign, it was eye level to us. Right. So the amount of drop that happens in a short time it's not Laguna Seca corkscrew steep, but there is quite an amount of drop that happens there. It is not flat by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. I'm going to guess within uh, maybe 250 feet of track length, it's dropping almost 30 feet. So it is quite the roller coaster there to that section of it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Kota is a, a big track, isn't it? And geographically, it's spread over quite a wide area. So I don't know what the sort of perimeter distance if you were going to walk the whole thing but was it a busy was, was it a big crowd there Jim because it was a little bit hard to tell from the, the sort of the aerial footage it didn't look massively busy there this year no I my estimate was that there was probably maybe 5,000 people on Friday the, the place is a ghost town mm, and you walked through like the vendor areas and stuff there was never a line to buy a souvenir or anything of that nature but it, that's Friday Nobody was really there. Saturday, I thought that there might have been maybe 12,000 to 15,000 people there on that Saturday. Sunday, if there was 35 or 40,000 people, 
that's what I, my estimate was. It was, I've seen crowds there that were usually in the, in the 65, maybe 70,000 on a Sunday. Mm. Uh, but it was definitely not that, not that crowd. There was mainly, I know that they weren't expecting a crowd because in the area they turn five, six, and seven, there's usually a big, huge concession stand there with two food trucks and a, and a big bar that you can go sit in the tent and have a couple of beers or whatever. That was not constructed for this event. So they were definitely not, I mean, there weren't even like the porta toilets. There weren't even out there by turn 10 where we were. There was none there. So it, you, they had big signs when you got to basically about turn four that, hey, beyond this area is very limited amenities. So they weren't even, in my mind, planning for that many people. So, mm, yeah, I guess we've got COVID to thank for that and various things going on in the yeah. world that's making life tough for everybody. But it's a shame. It did look a little bit empty, I must say, when I was watching it uh, on the yep. Dawner feed. But uh, it, it was empty. Yeah. Now, we both, obviously, you're at the track um, and I've had a busy work week since you got back. Uh, with a few little bumps in the road which we don't need to go into but and I've had a tremendously busy work week this week so I didn't and I was away last weekend so I didn't really get to see any of the practice or qualifying days the only thing I picked up on was the fact that there was a lot of shenanigans going on with loitering on the line in the MotoGP I guess it was in Q1 uh, yes. I haven't seen it I heard probably on the Sunday coverage that Rins was very vocal in moaning about certain people and I don't know who he was talking about because I didn't see it on track but is there anything? Did you pick up on any of that uh, sort of trackside, Jim? Yeah, we were. We happened to be in a pretty good position to watch a lot of it because we were. We were standing there at the not between nine and ten, and there's a very nice big screen there that you can watch all of it. And there was quite a lot of shenanigans of people riding, say, offline through the S's to reposition themselves. There was a lot of people riding uh, very slow around eleven on the very outside, waiting for someone to grab the toe and head back. Uh, same thing could be said through the areas of like turn 15 and then also along the outside that the worst part, I think, was the 19 to 20, which is the last two turns on the track. There was a lot of people there that were definitely off on the because they have a big paved runoff there off of 19 uh, for like the cars. And so there was a lot of loitering around there and looking and, you know, and it was also kind of hectic because some people would be slow to the inside because they're trying to go to the pits. You had people that are loitering on the outside and then you had people that were trying to split the middle. So it was definitely a bit crazy. It reminded you more of what you would see in Moto3 than Moto GP. Yeah. And yeah. more than one person I've listened to subsequently have said that, you know, the race officials come down pretty hard on the Moto3 uh, guys when they mess around like this and that the MotoGP guys in this case are getting away with far too much now and that there seems to be a, a certain reluctance to impose any penalties on people that are really starting to push what is essentially a safety issue which the sport is normally pretty hot on so I wondered whether or not it's time to start having calls out for things like a minimum delta time that these guys should be achieving on any given lap so that they're not hanging around waiting for a toe i can't disagree with you on any of that because it did get to the point of being almost ridiculous in a way you're, you're talking about the premier class of a world championship and to kind of be loitering around like they were was just silly mm. it's get out i don't want to get to the point where we have to do like single lap qualifying but i think you they should be able to impose some sort of a delta you know, if you're not within 
107% throwing a number out there of the fast time. Yeah. Then you're not going fast. You're not going fast enough. Yeah. I mean, quite apart from anything else, you, you know, there's always a, all this talk about tires and so on, but when they're hanging around on the, off the line like that, they either getting the tires dirty. And of course they're letting a lot of heat go from the tires, depending on where they're racing as well. So it kind of makes you wonder why they're doing it. Cause these guys, as you say, Jim, they're meant to be the best sort of 20 odd guys out in the world. So they, do they really need a toe? I mean, obviously they mm. feel that they do, but it's a bit embarrassing at times when it, and it's got getting really bad now. I mean, this has been started over the last two to three years. And I think we're at a stage where the, as I say, the governing body and the stewards need to start really coming down quite hard on this. You know, I don't think it's so much about the toe rich as it is that they want the rabbit out in front of them. Mm. They want a carrot, a reference. Yeah. Yeah. They want something to go after. And again, that goes to the point. These are the 20 best motorcycle racers the world has to offer. You're trying to tell me you cannot go out there and throw down a good lap all on your own. Mm. And I have to admit, I mean, if anybody really deserved a penalty in all that, it was Marquez because Marquez was terrible with it because he wanted a reference point because he was always looking for a Ducati or he was looking for Renz and the Suzuki. And you could just tell that's what he was doing because he aborted laps that were good laps because he didn't have a reference. Mm. It's like, you know, come on. I know. And it's like, yeah, you get, you just like going, no, man, you're, you are an eight times world champion. I think you know what you're doing. Yeah. Just you, you shouldn't have right. to rely on Bastianini going by and you using it as a, a character or a reference. You should be able to motivate yourself and ride hard enough that you can produce a lap time on your own. Hmm. And what's really interesting is a lot of the Moto three guys were kind of doing that. They were going out and doing the work themselves and making it happen. And I'm like, yeah, you guys are looking silly. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, we mustn't dwell on this too long, but, uh, you know, they're constantly talking about the rhythm and, you know, the need to get into that flow. And yet they they sort of do this sort of stuff as well. It, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. But, um, yeah, I, I guess we'll see this as the year goes on. So not too much to say about qualifying other than that, unless there was anything particular from Moto3 or Moto2, Jim, that particularly mm-hmm. caught your attention. Well, the thing that catches my attention for Moto2 is the fact that Cameron Bobier qualifies on pole. Oh, yeah, that. I, I thought you might there, There's that. that little thing about Just American that pride thing. kind of thing. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like the first time since like some dude named Kaczynski or something was on pole since the, like the 90s, <laughs> since like 1990. <laughs> that was kind of surprising because uh, Bobier went, was only fast in the third practice session prior to you know to qualifying. He had topped that session, and it was really kind of a flyer that he put in. If you looked at the people who were doing the work, it was Kenet, Dixon, um, Arbolino, who were of consistent quickness the entire time. I think Bobier pulled that out, and it was really interesting for in qualifying. There was so many people where we were because we were able to watch Moto2 qualifying from the little straight going into 19. There's a big shaded tent with um, – cocktails and beers and stuff that we were sitting underneath the shade and enjoying ourselves immensely at that point. And for that to happen, it was really cool for Bobier to take that pole, but it was like, eh, I don't know if he's got race pace. He was like, I'm crossing my fingers and toes <laughs> and everything, hoping that we could see, I didn't uh, hoping to see a podium going into it, but uh, 
if we looked at what happened in qualifying for Moto2, was Bobier wound up with the pole. Vietti was right there in second. Kanet, who was quick the whole time. Then Arbolino was there. They just sort of got caught out. They just were at the wrong place at the wrong time when the clock kind of ran out for them. Arenas looked good. And then Dixon also looked what good. And they were your first uh, three uh, rows, or first two rows, sorry. And then Navarro Outiger, who's, you know, the, the sort of the 19-year-old or 16-year-old. Is Outiger 16? He's 16. 16, yeah. yeah. Yep. 16. And he looked, you know, for having never been there, he looked quick to be seventh. And Outiger, or sorry, he was actually eighth. And Lowe's had a decent qualifying to be ninth. And then Acosta cracked the top 10. But the interesting thing to me was that Ayagura, who was quick, couldn't put a lap time together to get anywhere. And he wound up 10th or actually 11th just outside. So it was definitely sort of a mismatch of what was going on. The people who had sort of been at the front in the previous couple of rounds were at the back. The people who were in the middle kind of stayed in the middle and the people who were at the back kind of went to the front. So it was just <laughs> sort of kind of just sort of kind of mixed up. Of course, the whole weekend was mixed up because Moto2 started everything when usually Moto3 starts everything. So, it, you know, the, if you hadn't seen anything or don't know, it, the order ran Moto2, Moto GP, Moto3. Moto3 guys were last, which is has never been that way at Coda. It's always been the Moto2 guys. Do you know I mean, I, why they changed the order? I like never that? did come up with a reason to, for why that got changed at all in there. But it was definitely a change, and um, I, I don't, I'm not sure what they were thinking with that one. I, I don't know if they had the fear of a red flag from the Moto Three guys, and if they were going to be long and delayed, better to have that at the end than have it at the beginning. I guess mm. I, that's the only thing that I could come up with. But I've never seen in print anywhere why the schedule was twisted around like it was. Yeah, odd. I thought it was a little bit yeah, incongruous, I must say. So what extent do you think home, well, I was going to say advantage, or being at home has? I mean, we haven't seen Cam Bobier on the pole before, and then he pops it on there at Cota. I mean, it has to be something to do with being at home, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's a lot of it is that he has a significant amount of time around that track, having ridden there every year in Moto America as a, in Superbikes as a subset of racing to the MotoGP weekend. So he has a lot of time around that track. And yeah. I think he just simply was able to get it together and pull off a lap. I mean, you know, the track had been resurfaced and I think to everybody said that they really loved it that now they, they obviously Coda did conquer the bump issue for at least a couple of years. Mm. Interesting to note if they hadn't got the surface done, do you know where the backup race was going to be? Oh, go on. No, I don't. Indy. Oh, really? It was going to be at Indy. Uh. Yeah. I found that out when we got down there. I, I did not know that. I'm like thinking, well, dang, I wish they would have because we could just only been 90 minutes from home instead of <laughs> 18 hours from home. I thought you were going right. to say VIR or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was Indy because I think it's the, Indy, to my knowledge, is the only other FIM sanctionable track in the yeah. U.S. Yeah. For, for the level you have to have to hold a MotoGP race. Cause I know Laguna holds, I think Laguna still holds a sanction for super bikes, I think, but I'm not hundred percent on that one. I would need to check if, yeah. When, if, if they're going to be there this year, uh, I don't think they are this year because no, so in July it's all just a Moto America. So I'm not sure if Laguna lost that sanction. I know they didn't have at the time they, they did move them down a level from 
host being able to host a MotoGP to move it down to a super bike level. Mm. So I'm not sure about that, but I thought it was interesting that like if, if you know, they weren't able to get the track completed or whatever, that the race was going to move to Indy. So yeah, still interesting. Okay. So I don't know if there's anything else we really want to pull out on, on qualifying across the three classes. I mean, we can talk about the, the starting grid patch when we get to the race. So should we, Jump straight into the Moto2 race, given that that was the sure. first one of the day. Yep. We'll just start off with that. Bobier got a really good start mm. to be to lead into the first turn. However, he didn't go deep enough nor tight enough. And everybody snuck underneath, which meant Vietti, Kinnett, Narvalino, and Arenas all went by. And so suddenly the American hopes of victory looked weird because he wasn't anywhere near the front. He was back about sixth or seventh as the group went through. Being early in the morning, I'm not sure what was going on, but the interest, the first interesting thing that happened was, and this happened right in front of us, was Vietti crashed out of the, it crashed out a second, because Kinnett had Kinnett and Vietti had a bit of a tussle at the beginning of the race. They were sort of back and forth for the early laps. I'm talking, you know, maybe the first three, five laps of the race, and I was like, whoa, then these guys are really kind of pushing really hard here from the beginning, and it was it was much cooler on race morning than it had been previously the other two days. And it was very, very windy. There were actually uh, alerts that said, you know, high wind advisories in effect for the area that we were in throughout the day. And we were sitting for race day. We were sitting between turns uh, five and six and so yeah. that's where we decided that we went to be for the, to watch all the races. So we were sitting there. And so simultaneously I'm sitting there in my, in my chair with, with a sweatshirt on and the, the sun is off to what would be as I'm sitting facing the track would be my right. So the right side of my body is so hot. I can't stand to have a sweatshirt on. And the left side of my body is so cold from the wind <laughs> that I thought I'll, my fingertips are going to freeze. So never have I ever been in a place where I was so hot and so cold simultaneously other than here. I mean, I guess that's what it was like to be an astronaut on the moon. You know, you're in shadow, it's minus 350 degrees Celsius and you walk into the sun, it's plus 250 Kelvin, right? You know, or Celsius, whatever, whatever the numbers are, it's extreme change, but that's what it felt like. Yeah. So I don't know if that played into what was going on, but the next thing we saw was right in front of us there and out of the turn five, Vietti was down, lost the front, skittered across. And of course they go to pick up the bike and they try to bump start it and it doesn't start. And everybody's like, just bump it, just bump it. Just bump. I'm like, it's not going to start guys. It's mm-hmm. a triumph. It will not start. I mean, I've been down this road before. It isn't going to start. So there's my rant for starter motors on triumphs. I was going to say, I was I, waiting for the starter motor to come into the conversation. Oh, it's yeah. there. I, I just don't get it. It's it makes no sense. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a stock engine, not a stock, but a standard engine class. And then I'll have a, a couple two pound starter motor on top on them for instances of this nature, I think it's completely ridiculous, yeah. but we beat that horse enough. So we're just going to move on. My initial thought that's coming back to Cambobier was, was he aggressive enough at the start or is he aggressive enough at the starts? Cause I mean, these guys are pretty vicious off the line. Well, through the whole races, but particularly in that all important sort of first lap or so, because he did get a hustle back quite a long way, quite quickly, didn't he? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, it's not I a criticism. I, I just want to say I'm not right, criticizing right. the guy because you know that is a, a a melee and a half to find yourself in at the front of a Moto Two race. My thought is that he had a pole position the first time. I don't think he wanted to just throw it away at the first turn. I think he just wanted to to survive that first turn and survive the melee. And I think he just played it. I think he just played it too cautious. 
I, you know, I don't do, does he, did he have enough race pace to be at the front with the people? I'm going to go no, based on what happened in the prior free practices. But I, I, I think, you know, he wanted to try, he wanted to be there. It just, it's, it's, it's a game of millimeters, right? I mean, I think mm. he, he just broke for that turn a, a foot too soon. And the other guys just went in there and that that's just, it's a game of millimeters and precision. Yeah. And he was just on the wrong side of it, but it was, I, you know, finished where he finished later on was at least a good building point to go into Europe to some tracks that he knows now tracks that he likes. He loves Puerto Mayo, things like that. So I'm hoping we're going to see some consistent top five, which would be an improvement for where it was last yeah. year. I mean, I'm at a slight disadvantage and I don't know if you're any more of an advantage than I am in terms of his very, very stellar career in Moto America up until the point where he made the switch and came across to the world championship. Was he a particularly aggressive rider in that? Or was he just so much quicker that he didn't really have to fight anybody very much for those sort of glory years? Unfortunately, I think he was just the quickest guy in the pond, right? You know, he was the big fish in the small pond that is Moto America. Now he was on a good, he was on the good bike he he liked that bike but there is the point that um john hopkins made when they were talking to him in the morning prior just in between morning warm and the race he said hey look it's much easier to find the limit on a production-based super bike and know where it's going to give way you can feel it as john hopkins said and i quote you can feel it for a mile that it's going to go mm. where these very rigid moto two frames with very different dunlap tires than what cam has been used to it's either there or gone and it's only within a matter of you know i, I put two hands up so rich can see in the video yeah. but maybe it's a matter of you know six inches yeah right of finding whether you're on the ground that feel that you're either on the ground or doing the greatest lap you've ever made so i think it's more along that line for him is being able to understand the fine edge and it's sort of like a razor's edge of where we are with grip versus feel versus understanding of when it's going to go and how do you recover it? So as Kenny Roberts Jr. once said, Hey, anybody can ride a piece of shit at pull speed, but you, not everybody can ride a whole race. You can't ride a whole race with that kind of a bike. Yeah. So did he have enough for pole? Yes. Did he have enough race pace? No. So, I mean, a podium was the best I could have hoped for, but it never, never panned out. Mm. I mean, hopefully he'll take a lot of, positives from the weekend and as you say take that forward to tracks that he's familiar with as well now having had a season the other thing uh that you didn't mention at the end of or not quite about two-thirds of the way through lap one uh, Sonkiat Chantra decided to try and wipe out half of the field with what could only be described as a slightly over optimistic uh, braking technique into turn 12 which is the turn at the very end of the long back straight. I think, I think it's turned. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Yeah. Unfortunately we weren't close anywhere near that. We just saw people down. So I have no, no view of like what he tried to do there. Did you not have than, a screen, the big screen up in front of you? We, where you were not, sat? Right. Not very oh. close to where we were there. It, it was with the sun where it was positioned. It kind of washed that screen out that we could, could see. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, so the result of what he did, which was just basically to go in and completely miss his braking marker. So in doing that, he took out Lowe's, Aldegar, and I'm pretty sure Gabby Rodrigo and uh, young Van der Gerberg were kind of caught up in that melee as well. So that was five bikes out <laughs> right there. So, and then yeah. as you would have had a pretty much a grandstand seat as well as Vietti, then I guess you were pretty close to Acosta hitting the deck, were you? Yeah, we were close there too. It was another one of those, just the front just folded and he just was down. 
Um, even Kinnett fell right in front of us. The tightest of the turns as you sort of esch your way up to the to the top of the hill there at the back of the circuit. And it was it was just gone, just folded up, done. And Kevin Schwartz made a comment. He said that the pavement was new there, but it wasn't new all the way to the curb. And a lot of people don't use any curb there. Uh, if you look at how sort of the MotoGP bikes go through there, nobody uses the curb on the exit of on the exit of basically um, six or seven. They're always a good two bike racing lines over. Mm-hmm. And I always thought, this is, well, that's just your tight end, wide tight end. You kind of just hold it there because you got to go set yourself back up to go back from what is left to right and climb the hill. But it was, and again, the wind was raging through there. And so I don't know if the wind kind of caught it out. It wouldn't have been, I would have thought it would have been more like maybe at the next turn that the wind would have been more of a factor Mm. and more of a factor through maybe nine than it was where we were. But yeah, it just seemed like right there, everybody was there. I mean, quite honestly, to be honest with you, even the, the safety car that follows the, 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 um, bikes around at the start, almost lost it in that same corner that Kinnett fell. <laughs> it was the first lap and they went through their sideways and almost looped the safety car. So cold track part of it, maybe, like I said, track temperature was definitely much colder that morning um, mm. than it was previously. So, I mean, it was a pretty typical Moto2 race once the first few laps were out of the way. Uh, it kind of settled down into something of a rhythm. I just wanted to pick up, I, I decided I was going to have a quick rant and I did warn people that I would do this uh, the moment that it came to my attention. And that is that we had replays running again as people were busy crashing. So, and it was quite ironic. So I'm pretty sure what happened was that they were showing a replay of the start and, and in doing so, Miss Vietti being down. So then we cut to looking at Vietti staring down at his bike. And then a few laps later, we're seeing a replay of Vietti's crash when Kinnett goes down. So we missed both of those in terms of live coverage. And again, I just don't understand why they can't go in picture with these replays. They do have the little thumbnails. If you look at the timing tower on the left-hand side of the screen, they'll quite often show some on-bike footage of, say, Mark Marquez in fourth or Jake Dixon in third or whatever it is in terms of what race you're watching. And I just don't understand why they can't do this, Jim. It, it just boggles me because every time something significant happens, it happens during a replay and, or a point of slow-mo, and it just really gets me down. And I'm not the only person because I was listening to Greg's Garage pod the other day, and he and Jason Pridmore were having a similar moan about something that had happened on the Argentina coverage, which perhaps didn't annoy me quite as much as it did them, but this one really got my goat. So yeah, you, you probably didn't see that, but I had to make a point of it because I did say every time Dorna did this, I'd call it out because um, it's really, yeah, it just spoils the coverage for me and I don't know why they can't change it. No idea. Once we get rid of Kinnett, it was Arbolino's race to lose. Arbolino yep. was miles faster than anyone else that was there. Uh, a big shout out though to Ayagurak. So, so, um, Arbolito wins the race. This is his first Moto2 win. Big shout out to Ayagura. Ayagura came from where his like 11th starting spot. Now he did have help from, from Trantra taking out five bikes. <laughs> he did have help with Yeti falling off and he did have help with uh, Kenneth falling off as well. But he was very, very fast late in the race. And he that was a well-deserved second place for the young Japanese rider. We said it before, is Nakagami and Mark Marquez in the Indometsu team, Honda, you know, um, LCR, Honda camp, are one of those two guys' days numbered because Ayagura is coming. 
And I have to believe that very likely it is. Um, he showed great progress, I thought. And let's see what happens in Puerto Mayo. It could be a one-off, but he was definitely fairly quicker near the top most of the time. Like I said, had bad luck in qualifying and just didn't get it right at the right time with yellow flags and other things that were happening along the way. But Dixon had a great ride as well. Dixon was second for the longest time until Ayagura caught him and passed him. Yeah. I don't know if that was like a tire management thing because I because I, I, I don't know who was on what tires. I don't know if everybody was on the same rears or anything like that. But uh, I think, you know, for Dixon, I think maybe now everything's healed. And so now we're getting to see how fast Dixon actually is. So the podium again was, I thought, fantastic. It was like two podiums for him so far this year. I think, I think that's his first podium, but the first podium? obviously well, he's he, been near it. He's been at least near it. Let's he's been that. very up and down this season. You know, he crashed out from having been on pole in Indonesia, if you remember. And I think this okay. was just a race that, you know, he put his brain into gear and thought, I just want to finish this one and finish it well. He did. I think he'd mentioned that he was having a few moments as they always do, because they're pushing to the absolute limit or, or pretty close to it all of the time. And Agura, as you say, Jim, I mean, he's, quickly proving himself to be an absolute master of keeping grip on the rear tire because we see him doing this race after race now coming through very very strong at the ends a little bit like somebody in moto gp that we're going to be talking about <laughs> yep. a little bit later on and as you say both marquez and nakagami i think are seriously at risk from a couple of the moto two riders who are going to be looking to to move up and agura certainly is catching all the right attention at the moment isn't he so but mm. and tony arbolino i mean Great race from him. Whether he can maintain this now going forward, because we haven't really seen this level of a performance in Moto2 from him up until now. But, you know, could be the start of a run. Uh, the thing that kind of got my attention really was that this was not a costly race for the people at the top of the championship because all the main runners crashed out, with the possible exception of Agura and Dixon. But they've had, you know, some up and down results themselves. So it's just allowed them to catch up a little bit. But uh, so... All in all, it was quite a, an entertaining race, I thought. Yeah, and the disappointment at the end for the Americans was palpable because I think Bobier was fourth or fifth. I can't remember if Schroeder was ahead of him uh, on the final lap, but then like, I think at turn 19, he lost the front. Yeah. And everybody just kind of like got deflated. So Cam wound up, yeah, I don't know where he exactly finished. I think he was not – I don't think he was actually classified, to be honest. But, uh, yeah, so it was Hello. definitely terrible. Low-key weekend, all, all told, for Joe Roberts, really. I mean, he yeah. never really showed up at the never races, really did shined. he? No, he didn't. And Augusto Fernandez couldn't really make anything happen either. Yes. Which, uh, you know, from the guy who's kind of sort of been there, he was like, couldn't make anything happen. And, you know, and Arenas, who was quick in qualifying, couldn't go anywhere in the race. So, but that's how it shaped up for Moto2 guys. So I guess we should look sort of like at the championship. Yeah, as we go through, like you said, it didn't really change anything. It just Vietti is still on top with seventy points, even though he didn't score any. Iaguras kind of, I guess, is the big mover because he wound up in second now on fifty-six points. Arbolino moved up because he was on, you know, he won the race, so he went to fifty-four points. And then Kinnett was forty-nine points, which that kind of hurt. You know, Kinnett mm. falling off because I thought for sure he was up front. Like, oh, we're going to find out what the bow tie <laughs> is all about at last. Yeah. At last. Nope, didn't work. Then Somcat Chantra, Lowe's, Dixon, for Augusto Fernandez, Joe Roberts, and in 10th is a Marshall Schroeder in the points. So that's Moto2. Okay. So we'll move to MotoGP. MotoGP was the next race of the day. So, I mean, you can't really get away from the horror start that Mark Marquez had. And I don't, I haven't yep. actually found out other than it being some kind of electronic glitch. I, I believe I'm right in saying 
It was nothing to do with the start device or the rear device malfunctioning. It wasn't the pit lane speed limiter. Um, It's pit lane speed limiter. I guarantee you it was pit lane speed limiter. Many denials have been made that it wasn't, but of course they would say that, wouldn't they? So, yeah. I've heard the bike off the line. It simply bogs. The pit lane speed limiter had been engaged. Now, whether that was Marquez having hit it or that was a some random event of certain things happening in a correct order that caused it to think that it was actually there in the pits and it needed to be in that mode. But the, when he let the clutch out, the bike just died. Mm. And it was just, it wouldn't, it was, uh, 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 and then it would take off. So to me, I'm saying pit speed limiter based solely on what I heard from the bike on, on board for that part of it. So, yeah. We'll go with that. We'll go with that part of it. And that, now, res- and that result was that he was plumb last going into the first turn. <laughs> completely last. As we should, let's kind of back up just a moment here for qualifying, because from qualifying standpoint, the Ducati Armada showed up for the first time because the Armada took the first five places on the grid. <laughs> okay. <Yeah>. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was absolutely amazing at what happened there. And just to kind of recap it a little bit, in that qualifying, it was Martin's pole, uh, followed by Miller, followed by Ben Yaya on the front row. It was all the Ducatis that you could think of were all there in the in the row there. And it was just absolutely just fundamentally crazy that they all had that crossed over. And so you, you know, I'm thinking, this is it. Ducati's going to take the podiums. I really thought Ben Yaya was going to win the race. And then you'd be like Miller and then maybe Martin or Zarco or Bastianini, take, take your pick as to who was going to be where because you know marquez had qualified down like ninth or something in that at that point because you know he ditched a couple laps that are actually really good laps for him yeah so then we you know so with this going into this point of it it's like oh it's a ducati armada it's just going to be a ducati podium just which ducatis are going to be where it would be like you know shuffle the deck and play three card molly or something it's ducati 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 just take your pick the impressive thing is is that marquez having had this issue at the start again it wasn't as whole shot device it wasn't as the low the rear end lowering device that it caused the problem like it didn't turn into a chopper and stay in a chopper or something of that nature because after he got it figured out and was dead last he went to work and started to pick off people and i'm telling you standing there watching him go through people was one of the more amazing things that i've seen him do because the guy set the fastest slap around code on a moto gp bike on a bike that people say he doesn't know how to ride <laughs> Yeah, you know, with injuries that he's had, having just had double vision, you know, only what on Wednesday got on a plane to show up at the track. Yeah. Again, yes, it's a place that he loves. It's a place that's le- that turns left, and he's very good there. But I'm telling you, he would have beat all of the Ducatis and won that race had he got a just decent start. His race pace was phenomenal. He was in the like the two o high two o fours for like the entire time. Mm. It was it was a phenomenal ride by him to get where he was from dead last to get to where he finishes. I mean, it, this is not people who are not quick that are in front of him, right? It it isn't like half the grid is horrible and the other half of the grid is fantastic. He had the KTM's he had to ride through. He, he had he had. Um, the Aprilia's that he had to go through. I mean, those were bikes that won races. All of them have won races so far this year. And it was just phenomenal how fast he was. And one of the places that he was really making the time was that charge 
six, seven, eight, nine, over 10 to 11. He would just eat up gobs of time. We could sit there and physically see him catching people through those sections. And he would make up a lot going into 12. He was obviously in the draft the whole time and getting towed by people, but he was able to, you know, late break them, keep it on the track and then go through and power away from everyone. It was an impressive ride to watch him do it. And I was shocked that he, that he did do that well, especially after having flubbed the start, because I mean, man, the movie put on Quattro going into six was crazy good. Yeah. And then Quattro paid him back the next lap. And of course, Marquez knew it was coming, cut the corner, just turned it on the throttle on the back, just spun black, cut underneath of him. And then what happened? Fabio tried the same thing again. And Marquez did the same thing back to him. It was like you deja vu. Like you witnessed the same thing happen two times in a row in exactly the same place and exactly the same. And what was really cool because we were, we were right there when that happened, when those two, those two passes happened. And what was cool is you could watch where Marquez had thrown the rubber down and turned the bike when he went to cut back under um, Quattraro. And then the next lap, I tell you, he almost put that rubber back down on exactly the same line that he had used previously. I mean, if he missed it by 10 mils, that was a lot. Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those things that is just impossible to not to be impressed by what he did. So, I mean, so, you know, okay, now that the Mark Marquez fandom is over with, what else happened in the race, right? Well, actually, one of my questions was going to be to you, would Mark have won that race if he hadn't had the problem off the start line? In my mind, yes, mm. without question. His race pace was, I, you know, some things happen. Sometimes you get a bad start, you get the bit between your teeth and you just decide you're going to ride harder. I, I think Marquez was just like, no, nobody's winning here but me. And he just had the bit between his teeth the whole time. And, you know, whatever mistake happened, happened at the start. But yes, I do think his race pace was strong enough that he could have won. Yeah, I, I personally think if some butts are candy and nuts and we all have a Merry Christmas, right? Yeah, exactly. What we can say for sure is that this track was seating the Ducatis on mass because at one point, as you say, Jim, much like the starting grid, we had Miller, Martin, Bastianini, Zarco and Bagnaia up at the mm-hmm. front. We had a bit of a no-show really all weekend, I suppose, from KTM and to a slightly lesser extent, Aprilia. But the KTM's really had a weird sort of nowhere-to-be-seen weekend, as did most of the Yamahas, with the exception of Quattararo. I don't know if you were spotting anything trackside particularly that showed what their problems were, but KTM in particular were just nowhere-to-be-seen on screen. I mean, okay. Binder did his sort of usual Sunday routine and made a bit of progress, but even by his lofty standards, didn't really make much of an impression that I could see from watching it. Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea what happened to KTM. I mean, I couldn't detect if it was like a rear instability thing. Was it a front instability? There was there was nothing in there that I could tell that would have caused them to be that far back. They seem to have straight line speed. And my only assumption is that somehow they couldn't turn the Michelin tires on. That's all I got. Mm. And they're not going to say, so no. we'll have to leave yeah. it to that kind of, we'll have to leave it to that part of the speculation. In terms of Aprilia, Alicia Spargo is an avowed hater of Cota. We know that. I think yeah. he had something like five crashes there uh, at the race last year. The race was significant, however, because Maverick Vinyard has beat him, beat his teammate for the first time on the Aprilia. Now, okay, the context is that, Aleish does not like Cater, as we just said. But Maverick, again, is starting to become quite bullish in his comments, saying that he's now got top three pace. So I'm super excited to see them get to 
to Portimao to see Does if, he? if he can start to back that up. Well, I mean, he's saying it, so he's got to prove he's it. He's saying then. it. I, I, I know. I understand he's saying it. But from what I've seen, I don't think he's got top three pace. He's got more pace. He's mm. closer to the front. He's coming to terms with that motorcycle, and it's starting to do what he wants it to do. And he's developing confidence in what that motorcycle tells him you know, back through the handlebars and feel and whatnot. If you're comfortable, you go fast. You know, like Jeremy Burgess has always said, if the rider wants gold plated handlebars because he thinks he's going to go faster, give him gold plated handlebars because he probably will go faster. <laughs> you know, it is, it's just because you feel comfortable, right? It's pretty or whatever. Take, take it for what it is. He's, I think, I think he's right there. Is, is it top three pace? I think you're a little optimistic. Is it top five pace? Sure. I'll give you that. Easily, like I, I could easily see both Aprilia's in the top five in Puerto Mayo. Yeah, it, you know, I could always, I could see both KTM's in the top two in Puerto Mayo, right? I mean, Bender's good there, Oliveira is very good there, so I think it's just going to be wacky and crazy when we go there. I, I mean, that's uh, what I'm, know. that's what I'm loving about the 2022 season so far. You go from track to track, and suddenly a whole different group of people are at the front or the mm-hmm. back. You, you know, it's it's really very captivating in that sense. I, mean, I think it all boils down to who figures out the secret of the Michelin fastest. The, it's, I think KTM couldn't figure it out. I think Honda had it figured out with Marquez. Ducati was in the buttery zone there, if you will. Aprilia was on the edge of the zone, not quite there, but close. I really think that's what it's down to now. Yeah. I was listening to Simon Patterson, and I'm pretty sure it was Simon, said that Frankie Morbidelli was testing a new swing arm on the Yamaha for a decent chunk of the weekend whether he raced it i don't know but he was Hmm. quite sort of out of sight you know another of the guys that was out of sight for most of the weekend from what i could gather and had made the comment that he was busy testing stuff so quite clearly yamaha are now scrambling to see if there's something that they can do to get the power down or to improve the grip or or whatever but that might account for morbidelli's plus he's still recovering from this knee injury of course but i mean quattro i thought was did a pretty impressive job qualifying that bike sick bearing in mind you know that back straight which we know was going to be a problem for them he would find life pretty tough in the race and pretty much the whole race was kind of largely confined to loitering around p7 p8 and then of course he had that barnstorm in few laps race towards the end with uh, with mark marquez but again because of the coverage you know a bit like the KGMs didn't see davizioso or uh, Darren Binder on screen hardly once I don't think but again I guess they were just oh, I shouldn't say tooling around at the back because that's uh, a rather rude way a disrespectful way of putting it but it's slim pickings for that team and at the moment yeah they're I mean they were at the back that's where they were I mean Binder actually binned it because he threw it away Darren threw it away there towards the end of the race I don't know where it was I think I think it might have been turn two exit turn two Okay. Not hundred percent, but he did, he did crash the bike, um, which, you know, it's a rookie. You're going to do your, those mistakes are going to happen. I think the other interesting thing that happens in the race for me was how good the Suzuki's were. Yeah. That was, that was a shock on a, on a track that we know Renz does well at, like he's the only other guy to actually make, win at Coda other than Marquez to my recollection. Yes. And so he's obviously quick there, but what's amazing is the Ducatis do not have a huge advantage on the Suzuki's. They have a massive, massive advantage on the Yamaha's, but they do not on the Suzuki's. Suzuki has obviously found something 
And I, it, it can't all be horsepower because, you know, Miller has said numerous times that they got 15 more horsepower. And I don't think they pulled 15 more horsepower out of that motor. If they, and not, especially since, you know, you only get, was it four or five motors for a season? Mm. You, you, I don't think they did. I think what they've done is they've been able to maximize the acceleration of the bike. And I think they've got some pretty slippy body work on it. So I, I think that they have the wings on the front, you know, to keep the front end down, but they're not as aggressive as say the wings on the Ducati or maybe the Honda or the big mustache that exists in the Aprilia. So I think their top speed is not as limited aerodynamically because the bike is a little cleaner for a, a lack of a better word that I can think of right now, because Renz rode a phenomenal race to get where he was to finish where he did on the, on the, on the podium in second. I mean, I don't know what happened to Ben Yaya, but they, you know, the Armada started to just fall apart as the race, as the race went on, <laughs> the Armada kind of went backwards. The only person in the Armada that, in the Armada that went forward was Bastianini. Mm. I think Bastianini on the 2021 Ducati, which I think is still the better Ducati yep. because I think the 2021 has a bigger window of setup that works with the Michelins. And I think that it is more gentle on the tires than the 22 bike allow Bastianini to win the race. All credit to Bastianini. You got to be there to win it. And he was, yeah. so he just simply kind of watched everybody else kind of come and literally Bastianini really didn't ride any faster. If you look at his lap times, he really didn't go any faster. He simply, everybody else sort of backed up to him. And so he wants to win the race. Then if we get to the Suzuki's Renz finishes second. And again, Renz, if it wasn't for Marquez charging to the pack, like he did, I would have given Renz like ride of the race for him to do what he did on the Suzuki and he outshined Juan Mir. So we're seeing sort of a reversal here this year where last year, you know, Mir completely outshone Renz and now Renz is outshining Mir in that category. Cause, but still Mir did, was not a slouch. He just finished off the podium in fourth, you know, Miller hung on as the factory lone factory Ducati to be on the podium. And then, you know, Ben Yaya is in there in fifth and Marquez is sixth, but you know, all credit to Suzuki. They have something. And if they're this good here, they're probably going to be just about as good at Mugello, probably just about as good at Aragon, probably, you know, just about as good as at the other high-speed tracks that we go to. So, I mean, Suzuki's uh, probably second best bike right now, maybe. Yeah. And a thought that has occurred to me over recent weeks is that we've all been kind of saying that the Suzuki's suddenly found a lot of extra power or has suddenly become a much better bike. I'm wondering to what extent its inherent strengths in that era were being masked by the fact that they either didn't have or had a very early development stage rear shapeshifter. And now they've got it and it's working really well. It's maximising the engine because one of the things that's been pointed out and was very much evident on Sunday with both riders was that that bike is still turning beautifully and it's still keeping its rear tyre pretty well intact. So maybe the bike hasn't fundamentally changed all that much. It's just that they've got this rear shape-shifting device, which Rins did not like when it first came out. If you, I think they launched it in Austria last season, if you remember. So they're a long way behind pretty much everybody else in getting that device. And I think possibly where we thought that the bike was underpowered, it was just not getting its power down because of everybody else has stolen the march in development. Now they've caught up and possibly they've got the best shape-shifter out there for all we know, but... As you say, Jim, I mean, the Ducati was just about faster because Rins did get blasted by Zarco and a couple of the other bikes a couple of times when he'd overtaken them at the bottom of the hill there into turn 11. But 
as you say, there wasn't a great deal in it. And, and that Suzuki certainly is a bike that's a race long contender, which is why we constantly lament the fact that they can't qualify a bit further up the field, but they always tend to come from mid pack and finish quite strongly. The difference this year, of course, as we've said, is that Rins is not crashing and he's got so much confidence back with that front end. I mean, I don't know, again, you possibly didn't get to see a lot of this, but he was doing pass after pass down the hill into turn 11 and putting so much kind of Acosta-like, you know, front end, just chucking it in there and relying on the front sticking. So I really think Rins is a is a contender this year. And I think it's, I think he's starting to show that he's actually the faster rider of the two. I think Mir possibly is a bit more calculating and a bit, possibly a bit stronger between the ears and maybe a bit more consistent. But so far this year, Rins is really showing, starting to show that he might be the lead rider in that team. And I th- I'm pretty sure he's guaranteeing himself a spot in that squad, you know, where we thought he might be at risk. Ed, that's a great theory that it's the shapeshifter has been refined to where we can see the benefit of the small gain, maybe in mm. power that Suzuki has, has yeah. gotten yeah. from that engine. Before, like I said, it was masked by an ill-handling shapeshifting device. Yes, I think Renz will be back next year on a Suzuki. I don't think there's any reason for Suzuki to change. I'm beginning to think more along the lines now that Juan Mir won't be there because he will look for greener pastures elsewhere. Mm. That's kind of my take. Um, unless Suzuki can come up with something else that's going to make him happier. Renz is a lady. He's on the podium. Sure, you would be. But Mir is more of like, come on, you get that. Hmm. I want to call it sort of kind of like a minor case of the Quattraros <laughs> with that, like, Hey guys, what's wrong. We don't have, why are we not better than we are kind of a thing? You know, it's, it's hard not to envy the guy who's got a Ducati, right? It's hard not to envy a guy who's got the Aprilia or the Honda per se. Right. So there's, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm, I'm thinking maybe Mir might be looking for pastures elsewhere. The question really that comes is where could he possibly go? I mean, this is, I I had a bit of fun the other day and it's not for today's discussion, certainly, but I wrote down on a piece of paper, which I'm showing up on screen, which is wonderful for a podcast. This is my 2023 rider lineup. Ooh. So we'll we'll Okay. (laughs) Here's what I'll do. I'll make myself a 2023 rider lineup. Who goes where? Yeah. And then we'll, we'll discuss it in another, in a future show. How's that? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. We need to do it. All right. Certainly we need to do it before Hareth because that's where a lot of announcements start to happen. And it's only going to okay. take one or two moves, I think this year, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Bef- before the whole deck suddenly gets shuffled. So yeah, but we should definitely come back to that. Okay. But yeah, yeah, I like that. I mean, Mir's got the problem now, which is that he's a little bit unhappy and his teammates starting to beat him, which is not a particularly comfortable place to be. So it's going to be, yeah fascinating to see how he handles that over the next mm-hmm. few rounds but anyway as you said Jim really I mean an air Bastianini is what did Ducati do with a problem like an air Bastianini because it's on the one hand it's nice for them but on the other hand it's potentially a little bit embarrassing that he's in a satellite squad on a year old bike and he's really showing up the works riders both of them mm-hmm. and the 22 bikes and the other satellite squads so do they help him to develop that bike a little bit if they can? Or, and or do they start to impose some team orders to help him maximize his points haul? I don't think they'll impose team orders yet. Far too much to go into the season. Although it is ominous that after having won at Qatar, Bastianini did say, I have a bike upon which I can fight for a world title. And he is proving that he that those words were 
prophetic. I thought he was kind of like, kind of, eh, you know, just kind of talking it up a little bit, but he, he could quite possibly be very correct about that. If I'm Jack Miller, I'm very concerned that that boy will have my ride next year and I will be relegated to his ride perhaps mm-hmm. or going someplace else. My wonderment is Ben Yaya. He is still not happy with that motorcycle and how it works. That being said, it was better than it has been. It was way better than it was in Argentina. Again, you have an extra day of practice, so maybe that is part of it. But Ben Yaya is to the point where I wonder if he's looking at Tardazzi going, hey, can you get me a 2021 bike? Can I have my old bike back? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, I do not want to be Gigi Delinia, nor would I want to be David Tarazzi in Ducati because you have been waiting for a world champion since 2007, right? It was Stoner. Yeah. And you have the great Italians that have now come through the Rossi school and they aren't producing on your bike that you spent all the time to make a world beater but you had the right bike last year and you've sort of tweaked it. It's like adding too much salt to your food, right? You, you, you had the recipe, right. And you oh, just a little more seasoning will make it perfect. And you ruined it. Yeah. Tough times at Ducati. You can tell that Tardazzi is not happy. He's happy, but he's not happy. If you catch my meaning. Yeah. It's, it's a, a conundrum that they didn't really want to find themselves facing, isn't it? The thing about Bastianini, because he's kind of come to the front towards the end of last season, when you look at him, obviously he's, he's quite a small, lightweight guy anyway. But he has a very economical style on the bike as well. And he, he just has this trick of managing the rear. So that because people say, oh, is it a V4 formula? Is it an inline four formula? No, it's MotoGP's a tyre formula, isn't it? It's about making the tyres work. And this is precisely what we saw on Sunday, which was the guys that could keep the tyre intact went f- forward and the people that couldn't, like Miller, for example, who pretty much always doesn't manage to keep the tyre to the end of the race, just fell back. And Banyard just hasn't really figured out. He kind of just went static in the last five to six laps, didn't he? And was just kind of stuck where he was. So, yeah, you got to figure that going forward, Bastianini is going to be the main target or the main threat for, for race wins on a Ducati, at least. Certainly until such time as they've managed to get their head around this 22 bike and see what if anything that they can do to try and find a a a sweet spot and a much wider sweet spot for that matter as well so and i come back to my question last week which is what detrimental effect is having to take the front shape shifter off the bike had in terms of the overall composure of that machine maybe they have just got the wrong riders on it i mean i just as as a little snippet i think pramac next year will be miller and bastianini Hmm. We're, we're thinking the same. We're, we're kind of thinking in the same direction here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I cannot see Miller being in the works squad next year. I think it's purely mm-hmm. a question of whether Jorge Martin or Enea Bastianini gets the bike. But arguably, it doesn't really matter. It might be com- two completely different people on red bikes. Mm, that's a contentious one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave that, for the, leave that for the 2023 rider show. <laughs> Yeah. For a ref, people. For a... Oh, do we want to? Is there anything else from MotoGP? Or we got, I think we kind of sort of got it all there. Yeah. It was a good race. Uh, I mean, it, it was, was. A good, it was a good race, but the, the Barnstormer is what we're going to talk about next. Cause as always, it was Moto3 that really delivered the main thrills, I thought, for the day. 
See, that's weird because maybe that's because you can't see everything when you're at the track. Because my thought was that the worst race of the day was the Moto3 race. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and yeah. it is a totally different perspective when you're track side. Yeah. And if you, particularly if you can't see, clearly see, or at all see a big screen with what's going on elsewhere. Yeah. You've not had a chance to watch it back since you've been there. Yeah, I, mean, I have not seen it. They had, you know, typical crazy qualifying that is associated with Moto3. I thought for sure that the Hondas would have been much to would have been at the front. I think we all expected that with the horsepower and stuff there. So it was a Honda one, two, just having to be Mino who just got across the line to beat Foggia. Although Foggia was on a hot lap coming, he just lost the last little bit in fourth sector. And then you had Artigas on the CF Moto bike, who looked good to be the third. Anchu looked fantastic on the KTM. And then you sort of had the flood of KTMs because then, you know, here comes Masia and you had Marini and Hidalgo and Toba and Sasaki and Guevara. That's your top 10. And it sort of was like a normal qualifying session. I'm like, well, Fazia is this close to the front. This is going to be a, a Fazia runaway. He's got the ability to go right from the beginning, get out front. And if he rides the pace that he can ride, I thought this race was, was done. <laughs> and mm. it, apparently it wasn't done because it all kind of went wild there for a little bit. But I thought it had that sort of normal kind of like, hey, here's the recipe of what a Moto3 race should be. Okay, let's have a crazy start and let's shift guys around like mad for five laps. And then why don't we just calm down for a while and realize that Foggia isn't anywhere at the front where he should be. He's back in, you know, eight, nine, 10, which is where Foggia tends to ride the bike. And, oh, it's like, oh, yeah, well, we're just clicking off laps. Okay. Whoa, there's six to go. Wait a minute. Hold on. Wait a minute. Foggia has now found the front. Oh, wait up. <laughs> and, and, oh, wait a minute. He drug Nina with him. It's just like, it's like, look, I've seen this before kind of a thing, or at least. It's how it felt at the track, you know? Yeah. And I, I, and I think, I think one of the things too, is that for me, it, w- it was a psychological war because I saw Moto2, which I have an interest in because I'm an American, right? I want to root for the Americans, but it was a good, it was a good race and the bikes are pretty quick. Then you watch MotoGP, at least it could, those bikes are just phenomenally fast. Your mind, again, doesn't comprehend how quick that MotoGP bike is. Then you see Moto three, and it's like, oh my gosh! It's like, did you guys, what did you, are, did you stick a ring in a cylinder, and we got low compression? I mean, they just sort of like take forever to kind of go by. So you, <laughs> I, I think it was like, I think that's why I think the racing was bad, is because my perspective of it is like I've been geared up for really fast stuff, and now I see the slowest stuff. Whereas usually it's, hey, here's the the, the twiddlers at the beginning of it. And, and they, you know, all due respect to the Moto3 guys, they're not twiddling anything, right? They're hauling mm-hmm. ass and they're an 80 horsepower, 250 cc bike. They're hauling the mail. <laughs> but in comparison to what you've just seen, it's not the same. So, yeah, that's a good point. And again, it begs the question as to why the running order was mixed up in the way yeah. that it was. But no, I mean, my impression of the Moto3 race, having watched it on TV, unlike you, was that, yes, I mean, it does, the recent races have tended to follow that formula but the bit in the middle really which for the purposes of this race you can just put down to Dennis Onchu really was just crazy overtakes going on and one of my kind of talking points or questions I suppose really was with regards to Dennis Onchu was it audacious or dangerous because of course this is where he famously copped his two race or two or three race bench penalty for the multiple rider pile up that 
he was blamed for, though I still think it was a slightly harsh penalty in that particular instance. But there was a fair amount of comment from people saying that the guy's way out of control and has he learned any lessons at all? I mean, I don't know what you were able to see of the passes that he was doing because, again, they were in that first third of the race, so you might have got to see some of it going on. We didn't really see much. We had actually moved from where we were, and we okay. went more towards turn two, okay. and we were watching the Moto 3 guys from there. So we didn't get to see as much of it as you would have on TV. So I know he was up and down and did, you know, it was, you know, from what we could hear announcing wise and, you know, kind of listening to the, to, to the MotoGP feed through headphones and my, uh, from my phone. Um, there was, seemed like it was pretty crazy there. I personally didn't get to see many of those passes that uh, Anchi was doing. I, is he aggressive? Yes. Is it too much? Ooh, that's a tricky question because I don't think you want to try to make a slow rider fast, but I think you can take a fast, wild-ish rider and tame them to be very good slash great. So I'd rather have him be the way that he is and sort of try to rein him in as opposed to trying to waste shoe leather, trying to make him go faster. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the race, as you say, Jim, the race started and first lap or two, I was trying to make a few notes and, you know, you'd make a note of what you've just seen. And then you look up and, oh, it's all changed again. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's pointless trying to make notes really with the Moto3 race or, or that one in particular. There was some bad luck going for the Gas Gas Aspar team uh, this weekend because Garcia, and again, I'm not quite sure why, but he qualified down in 15th place. So he was having to come from a fair ways back and he did have a very good start and was running up around about seventh or so, but he got into a little bit of a tussle with Daniel Holgado. Holgado just went, went through on the inside and just kind of nicked Garcia on the way through and that put Garcia down. So that was the first of the riders in the gas gas team who had a bit of bad luck. And then the very, very tightest of jump start penalties. I mean, they did show a replay of it. Thankfully they didn't miss anything else going on whilst they showed the replay, but um, Guevara, just crept just that tiniest, tiniest. It literally couldn't have been much more than a centimetre of movement before the light went green, but he copped a double long lap. So I have to say that it, that put him back after he'd served his second long lap to 11th place, and he was quite some time difference back. And he actually fought through and was very close to the top six at the end. So I thought it was a very creditable uh, recovery ride from Gravara. And I think he was possibly your tip for the title this year, Jim, when we were talking about this at the beginning of the season. Also yeah, one of the I, I said anyway. Foggy all the way. Yeah. Or, yeah, I said, we, you know, if anybody if anybody can challenge it, I thought it would be Garcia right, or maybe Guevara because the Gas Gas guys seem to be fairly well-placed. But it's definitely, in my mind, Foggy's title to lose. Yeah. I mean, Guevara, though, has not had a particularly lucky start to the season. Uh, he conked out, if you remember, we, he had a mechanical in Argentina and just, just various things haven't quite gone his way. So again, once we get into Europe, I'm going to be interested to see if he can start to gain some momentum because the kid's really, really quick. So um, yeah, and it was a good recovery ride by him. It was initially a, a very good start and a lively performance from both Daniel Holgado and young Marrera as well. But through separate incidents, both of those guys would uh, would crash out. And ultimately, 
yeah, it kind of boiled down to the last few laps, Jim, as you said, where you were just waiting for that last lap, really, which is what it always comes down to. And in this particular case, slightly older, wiser heads did prevail in the form of uh, Jaume Massia, who got his first win in well over a year. I think Qatar last season was the last time he won a race, which in that team is a long time coming. So good result for him. Uh, Foggia solidly there again in second. And the really wise old boy, Andre Migno, in third place. Didn't they, didn't they stuff Migno heading to 20? Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. axe murderers, so you know, love, as yeah. always, on the last lap. I mean, it's just hideous, um, but but very entertaining. And a very good race also from Artigas, I thought, and Sasaki, uh, who, again, hasn't had all the best luck so far this season, but he has been very, very quick uh, up at the front. So, yeah, as always, a, a lively, entertaining race. I mean, there was plenty of five abreast down the back straight action going on, which, again, you wouldn't have seen, but if you catch the, the replay, it would be well worth doing so. And a fair bit of jostling, but nothing on the scale that we saw last year, thankfully. Although uh, Onchu did have a bit of a swipe across the track uh, on the main straight and did hit Marrera, I think it was, who was leading at that point. So, yeah, yeah the, the boy needs to just kind of tone it down a little bit. And I'm surprised, really, with, with Onchu, who's so fast. And, I mean, some of the moves that he pulled, I personally didn't think it was out of order. I thought they were well executed, very, very brave moves. I mean, he was overtaken in places that I haven't seen people overtake before, but I'm surprised somebody's not more in his ear just saying, just calm it down in the middle part of the race and wait for that vital last three, four laps and just get yourself in position like the Fodgers, like the Minos and so on tend to do. So we'll see. Let's see if he learns and develops more as a rider as the season goes on. Yeah, I think this has got to be his time to really figure it out yeah i don't think herve is going to stomach much more of this i don't know i don't know what it is I, I, is it is it arrogance is it uh, stupidity is it angst um i don't i don't know what it is that he has i i, I don't think it's a lack of respect for anyone i i seriously don't think it's that no i, I just don't, don't I, I just don't know why he's so i'm going to use the word rambunctious here good word for for for, for um, for his for the way he does things, it's just oof. You didn't have to be that stingy. You don't have to be that brutal with the chop. You, you know, um, to use a Formula One analogy, it's kind of like when Schumacher first showed up, and you know, you get the chop, right? You know, mm. that was sort of a Schumacher thing, and sort of like this is just an onto thing. And eventually, everybody, you you've already really made a problem for yourself in my opinion, because nobody's going to want to work with you to get from the second pack to the front pack because you're, you can't be relied upon to behave. Yeah. So everyone's mm-hmm. going to not want to go with him. Uh, you know, so it's going to be even harder unless he starts to does things to start to earn back the respect of the rest of the guys that are actually in the paddock. I don't want to skate on too thin ice on this one because I'm not making any judgments, but you know, he is part of that Keenan Sofoglu, Toprak Razgatioglu camp of riders. And both of those guys, I mean, if you get a chance, as we might talk about next week, to watch any of the World Superbike races from Aragon this weekend, or the weekend just gone. I mean, Razgatioglu is just a guy, you overtake him, he will come back at you straight away. Uh, and more often than not with him, it's an in-control move. But in many cases, it's right on the very edge of disaster or acceptability really and uh, all those guys 
hang out together they train together so they're on bikes together and I think it's just that kind of mentality that they have when they're out training you know they go at it hard so in that context I suppose he's kind of almost a little bit wired to be like that when he rocks up at a Moto3 race and you just do wonder if somebody I mean maybe Hervé Pontral is constantly saying to him look just calm the hell down you know but in the heat of the moment I think he's just wired that way and you know we've seen him get into big trouble for it and hopefully we won't see that happen again and I hope he does win a race this year because he certainly deserves to win a race. I think there's something to be said for what you you have stated. I'm okay with the hard, on the edge, but fair move. My issue is that the move is made and then there's the big chop that goes with it. Mm-hmm. Like if you would just maintain your line, it would all be okay. From my eyes, if I'm race direction, if I'm looking at it, I would be like, okay, that's fine. But it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the, oh, I'm in front of you now. So I'm going to go weave over here. Yeah, come on, man. No, 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 no. You, you got to sort of calm down. You know, hey, that's a hard but fair move. Let's just maintain where we are. If we're faster, we're going to be faster and be ahead and prepare for that guy to have the right to sort of come back at you at the next corner or whatever it is. Now, I think all bets are kind of off if it's the last lap. I can see a weave, break the draft, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, in the middle of the races, it's, it's lap four. It's it's lap six, eight. Yeah. Like, well, no, man, no, man, calm it down just a little bit. Uh, Happily and thankfully, we haven't seen too much of this since Cota last year for reasons that are patently obvious. Aside from Foggia's antics in qualifying in Qatar this year, which was way, way over the line, in my opinion. And suitably talked about in race direction to which he's now not done that again. True. Yeah. So... Again, I think props to race direction. They had an issue. They took care of the issue. This issue with Anju doesn't seem to be getting anywhere. And the boys sat for having been suspended before. Maybe he needs one more of these. Yeah. I mean, just to be clear, I mean, he wasn't weaving particularly. He did sort of cut across and and make contact with Marrera, which, again, was pretty naughty. But let's call that one a bit of an accident. Most of the rest of what he was up to on Sunday were just like crazy overtakes, but they he didn't take anybody down and he didn't crash himself. So, but they were audacious, let's say. I mean, that's the favourable word. And they were well executed, but they were very close to the edge of, I guess, what would have some of the other riders on the receiving end would have thought was acceptable probably, but then they would say that, wouldn't they? So, but no, overall, I thought Moto3 race for me was the best race of the day, but it's just interesting that perspective that you get from watching it on telly as opposed to, sitting trackside yeah that was a really big big deal was that just just that perspective of how different it was when you're there versus you know we always talk about how great that race is and then if i'm there it's not that great yeah yeah it's interesting anyway so the net result of all of that was that we had Masia in first foggia came in second Mino third so to round out the podium and then we had sasaki on chu managed to keep it uh, sunny side up uh, Artigas had a very good race. Gravara, as you said, finished seventh uh, and came back from uh, a double long lap penalty. So that was a pretty pretty good result for him. Uh, Tatai, Rossi and Suzuki rounded up the top 10. Other notable mentions, well, I would put my hand up for Scott Ogden in 12th. I think that's his best finishing position so far. And there was a little bit of bad luck towards the end. I think uh, Toba went down. Uh, so that's going to affect his championship position uh, a little bit. Have you got the championship positions there, Jim, that we can talk I about? I do. So after Kota, Dennis Foggia leads the world championship on 74 points. He is 
in second place is Sergio Garcia on 58. So there's a fair bit of a gap that Fagia has now started to develop. Then we had Mino, Guevara, Anchu, Masia, Tatai, Sasaki, and Toba. And Artigas is in 10th on the on 26 points. A lot of races left to go. A lot of things can change. But uh, hopefully we you know enjoy the racing a uh, bit more <laughs> the next time. Or at least I will because I'll be watching it on TV. Yep. I think that's probably just about us done, Jim, for the... I think so. Cota Grand Prix weekend. A good weekend. Everybody made it out of their safe and sound, which is always good. So, and we'll look forward, or I will look forward to British Superbikes this weekend. And, yeah, let's see if we can try and catch up for a quick overview of some Superbikes, perhaps sometime next week, Jim, if that's possible. Should be. So let's call that the show. If you want to get in touch with us, you can. It's motopod at motopodcast.com is the email goes to all the hosts past present so it'll stir something up and it might get onto the show if you want to get in touch with myself i'm at moto rgv on twitter and instagram rich you are at uh at richard jowett on both platforms on both twitter and instagram i'm at richard jowett yeah that's correct there we go and so folks i think that's it we'll get out of here reminding you all that you need to ride safe and we'll catch you after port tomorrow bye for now cheers 